0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. At Pixar,
1: on your first day, whether you're a, let's say you're a barista or let's say you're a programmer, let's say you're a director, the exact same thing happens. You walk into the, to the theater and you sit in the fifth row because that's where the director sits, the best seat didn't know that at the time. And the, uh, and Ed Catmull, who's the president and co-founder comes out and says, whatever you did before, you're a movie maker. Now we need you to help make our films better. That's what he says. And then they go to a meeting where everybody in the company watches footage together that they produced the day before. And they get a, they call it plussing, adding ideas, adding ideas to it. I met a guy who was a, a software tech guy who had suggested a change in the metals that the up boy scout the boy scout and up what he wore they made a little change this connection safety voice they're tossing these tennis balls all over the place and so that experience of seeing and we've all had that experience right like you walk into a room maybe it's a great school maybe it's a great restaurant maybe it's a great family maybe it's a great business and you feel something what you're feeling is that that sense of cohesion and connection and cooperation and And there was a a great Harvard study that looked at 200 businesses, and they were paired. So they were identical. They were very similar businesses, but one had a strong culture. One had a weak culture. And at the end of a 10-year study, these ones with strong culture had produced 756% more net revenue. That's what culture is. Culture makes a group add up to more than the
0: sum of its parts. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Dan, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Hey, it's good to be here with you, Srini. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So you know we've actually had you uh, in the past, and you were phenomenal the last time. And when I got a chance to look at this new book, um, The Culture Code, The Secrets of Highly Successful Groups, I was really intrigued by the concepts in it uh, and, of course, really envious about the people that you know you got to talk to and the research that you got to But before we get there, I want to start by asking you, uh, what social group were you a part of in high school and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career?
1: Oh, what a question. You always are good for questions. That that's outstanding. I was in this group. There was like a bridge group between jocks and nerds and it was I went to a high school with about 1000 people in Anchorage, Alaska, which is one of the reasons things were like ill-formed socially. And uh-huh. some but there was this group, it was kind of endurance athletes who were into like you know being being decent at school, and and so that was that was the big one, and that actually has ended up having a having a pretty big impact, just in terms of the you know the relationships that I still have today, but also in this intersection of like you know there's there's science gives you a new way to think about being a jock it gives you a new way to think about sport and performance and so that scientific thread of seeing really cool stuff um really great performances but also always bringing the x-ray machine along to like say oh let's what's there what's going on underneath the surface there you know not being satisfied with the answer oh they're just really good Uh um so that that oh, that's that's a that's a great question and that is that is i think that that's cool it's fun to connect those dots
0: yeah um
1: what sport did you play I played racquetball at a. Let's see, I, I, everything has the asterisk, growing up in Alaska, so it wasn't <laughs> this huge, huge group of people playing racquetball. But so I played at a pretty high level, um, you know, a pretty high state level when I was a, when I was a teenager. But I don't know. We had one of those basements, which i don't know if they still exist um it was a tile floor with a smashed radiator all around the edge because we would smash into it with our roller skates and we played every single sport down there you know we we played we invented sports and, and so uh that was kind of the main beyond beyond <laughs>
0: there's a lot of
1: lot of roller skating around uh in circles uh and driving myself and my brothers uh, driving each other crazy mm-hmm.
0: um for uh, racquetball, do you have a coach? And I'm curious uh, what impact being an athlete had on sort of your interest in the work that you did around the talent code. Like, you know, is there a dot that connects those two things together?
1: Yeah, there totally is. You know, we, I lived a short bike ride from the from the racquetball court. And so I got into this habit. Well, a couple of things. I had this old series of books that was about NFL stars and Major League Baseball stars. And I just like they just captured my imagination. And a lot of them dwelt on kind of the story of that person's rise. Like, how did they get to be Johnny Unitas? How did they get to be um, Lou Brock or Mickey Mantle? And, and so a lot of those stories, of course, are around practice. So my impressionable mind got the idea. I want to, I want to be like that. So I kind of built a routine of biking over to the court and, and racquetball is beautifully designed. It's sort of like, sort of like skateboarding, I guess, where you always get sort of, the ball always comes back at you. You don't need anyone else. Mm -hmm. And so, building a routine where I could look at somebody's forehand that I really liked and, and mimic it, copy it and develop drills to kind of, um, to figure that out. So, and I occasionally get coached by somebody who was around very informally, but it was, it was really that, that thing that I, I saw how every single day I got a little bit better and I would get sort of, when you tried something new, you'd get worse first and then you'd get better. And, you know, it, you had that, I got to have that experience, which all of us have when we pursue uh, a talent where you sort of get to a place where you you'd never imagined you'd be you can do things that that an earlier version of yourself would look upon with astonishment you know like you know anybody who's pursued art has had that that thing of looking early early renditions of what they produced and then later ones and the later ones are impossibly more co- accomplished so I got to have that experience early on, where it was um, you know, the, the power of living in a small state, where it wasn't, you know, unbelievable to sort of be among the better players in the state, and but also this power of of a process where if if you really go there and and do that and swing that racket and focus on making the ball do what you wanted to do and copy the best players, you can. You can get better really, really fast.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think you and I touched on this last time we talked, but I kind of want to revisit it. Uh, One, how do parents bring about this process for their kids? And two, Uh, You know, you wrote a book called The Talent Code, but I think that you and I can both agree that for the most part, the way we're educated is not in such a way that it's designed for mastery of a particular craft. In fact, we come out being pretty average at a lot of things uh, based on on how we're educated. And so I'm curious, one, what would you say to parents? And two, based on having this perspective um, on achievement and success, how would you change our education system?
1: Wow. Wow. Those are just small questions, aren't they? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um well it's interesting i mean in terms of in terms of parenting i happen to have four kids and and there was a, some advice that uh carol dwack i heard her give some years ago and it was as a parent you should do a couple things two things focus on doing these two things and right away she's got my attention you mean parenting can be distilled to two things that's awesome I mean, <laughs> so the two things are play attention to what your kid stares at and praise them for their effort Uh-huh. I think that's really, really good advice. Staring is loving. Uh, when your kid stares at something, that's a big deal. Uh, and and trying to fill their windshield as much as you can with worthwhile things to stare at—great performances, beautiful music, um, great uh, skill—and and then when they do react, um, really, you know, give them a sort of, you know, a, a version of a basement where they can explore and learn and test and fail and and be on the edge. Um, and and to give them and appraise them for their effort to sort of not not say, oh, you're so great at that. When you praise someone for their ability, mm-hmm. um, you're sending a really strong signal of status and you cause people to lean away from risk. And risk is where the growth happens. Being on that learning edge, you're constantly falling. You're constantly making mistakes. And so praising for effort sends a signal. Hey, you know, we expect mistakes. Effort effort is is, is what really counts So I, I think that to me, that's the, that's the big thing. And to connect the dots. A little bit to the to the educational system i mean it's been it's been interesting and there's a lot there's a lot of really cool things happening in education people like to you know of course we all like to complain about about the the, the state of education but um all over uh, i visited the kip schools uh, for both books for both the culture code and the talent code and in both there was this great kind of marriage of Rigor and discipline, and and real creativity, and empowerment, and autonomy, um, where you're sort of helping people, trying to create these situations where people can spend time, kids can spend time on that learning edge, mastering things without being over evaluated um, and over tested um, on those things. And so, I think things are, you know, we're living in a world where, you know, the it's a learning contest, right? I mean the the, the, not just school is a learning contest. Business is now a learning contest. Sports is a learning contest. Being a parent is a learning contest. We all—the you know, world moves fast, changes quickly. We're all going to have a, a bunch of different jobs, um, and this idea that we need to create these communities of learning is a—I think a really a really powerful one. And and I think it'll it'll you know it, we're already seeing it. I see it actually. I do some advising for the Cleveland Indians, uh, the baseball team. And and I've seen a change in mindset there. I've worked for them for about five years, uh, part-time, and you know, they've been doing pretty well. Um, not no, certainly not because of me, but they're doing really, really well. So the best records in baseball, right? They actually conceive of themselves as a baseball school. They are, you know, they have single A, double A, triple A, you know, the majors, so the Dominican, the Arizona League. They're baseball schools and they wanna they want to create, they talk about growth mindset all the time. They talk about being on the learning edge. And in some ways, it's it's uh, to me that's a really really encouraging sign that some of the top organizations in the world are really embracing this kind of school model. Really, with which is, look, we need to we need to get together. We need to have great feedback. We need to have really vivid examples of what great looks like, and we need to work toward that together every day. That's the definition of a school. And if that happens in actual schools, and that happens in in business, that happens in sport, uh, more power to us all.
0: Yeah. Um, Two other questions come from this. Uh, you mentioned risk earlier and how risk is, is, you know, tied toward growth. And one of the things that I've seen, at least in terms of the people that I've talked to, is that their capacity for risk seems to uh, diminish with age. And, of course, obviously you have, you know, a lot more responsibilities, uh, you know, with four kids. I don't think you can same, take the same risk as you, as you do as a single person, but I'm curious. Um, what has been your own capacity for risk and how has it changed with age?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's there's a there's a little bit of um just you get you know just the nature of life you sort of get set in your habits and your and your grooves we've done a couple of things in our in our lives to kind of jolt us out of things and i give my wife all the credit for this but there's kind of an openness to adventure that she has always instilled us with and for instance there was an opportunity we had to to move to spain and it was, a, it was supposed to last for 3 months well we ended up staying 15 months putting our kids in school over there and she was um, absolutely. Uh, it was sort of a transformative experience for our family. And we also alternate, we live sort of in Ohio and also in Alaska. And so this constant sense of um, kind of motion and adventure and leaning, looking for that uncomfortable thing, you know, it's, it's, it's never easy to pack up and go, and it's never easy to, to sort of do those sorts of things. But realizing that that's in fact and I guess this sort of connects in a way to this notion of vulnerability that, that plays up, plays very large in the function of, of really successful groups. This notion that if if you're not really kind of uncomfortable in sharing your weakness and, and trying to kind of push past um, push past your own reserve, uh, you're 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 not you're not really living, um, and you're not really connecting with your group. So. We've we've definitely kind of taken some of that to heart in our in our our family and in the kind of way we structure our lives to always, you know, Google has that twenty percent time where you sort of have twenty percent of time to to do extra stuff that, that you're interested in. That's actually not a bad thing to do, just in life, you know, just to sort of have that extra drawer in your desk or that extra time of your day, you know, whether that's 20 minutes or an hour. And, and there's, it's, it's challenging because the world, you know, the internet and communication, they want to fill that time, but to actually carve out, uh, that extra bit to, uh, to sort of with some intentional exploration slash vulnerability slash failure seems like, uh, not a bad place
0: to start. Mm. So, I have one other question, uh, about parenting as somebody who has literally written the book on, you know, achievement at the highest levels and knowing what it takes to achieve at that level and get to that level of talent. Uh, has it impacted the way that you're raising your kids and recognizing their own talent and nurturing their talent?
1: Yeah, it's been interesting. I mean, you know, it, it, it has, you know, because the more you get in touch with, with that. And I think in, in, well, a few simple ways. I mean, one is that we haven't gone all in as sports parents. Like, you know, that, that's kind of a default position of people in our generation where you just sort of, you know, you become a hockey family or a soccer family or whatever. And early on, we, we decided that we're going to have our kids sample a lot of stuff widely and not completely get, you know, unless unless they did, um, <clears throat> not completely get obsessed with a single, a single narrow area um, of kind of chasing and stuff. It's And the other the other piece that I think has has, it's affected is there's there's some unhappiness at the top of the pyramid. You know there really is. It's not accidental. I write I write a lot about how the unusual uh, achievements of orphans. You know people who early on get a signal that the world is not a safe place. And if you are um, going to kind of sacrifice everything to, uh, to, to be the most successful human being you can be. Um, that, that's, that's a, that's a real sharp mountaintop. Um, and it can, it can create, it can be, it can kind of come married with some dysfunction. And so one, one thing that we've kind of done, I don't know if it's worked or not, but we've always kind of focused on our kids being, you know, sort of modeling and trying to be good collaborators and, and good team members and being, it, it's much More fulfilling, I think, in some ways to learn the skill set of what it takes to be on a great team and learn skills of leadership and learn skills of of collaboration and cooperation and cohesion um, to learn how that works more than like, oh, you need to go play chess 16 hours a day and move your ranking up. Um, a little bit every day that that sort of solitary pursuit of excellence becomes less uh attractive despite the fact that that's how i spent big chunks of my youth um and uh, and the, the more sort of collaborative model seems to seems to be more flexible and and easier to train and kind of more fun um rather than just sort of all right junior go get your ten thousand hours and then we'll talk
0: mm-hmm. uh two other questions one have your kids read your books uh Two, what is their reaction to it? And three, do you get pushback from them on any of this? You know, my
1: kids are 22 and 20 and 17 and 16. And there's, there's a moment where like you don't, as a kid, you don't really absorb what your parents do. Like you don't really care. <laughs> right. um, you could, you know, And I know they've seen them, but they're just sort of like potted plants, uh-huh. you know, like, oh, there's the book, you know, so what? Um, so no, I would say it's kind of slower on the uptake. And there have been times where, Oh, my classmate is reading that, or something like that, where it comes through with a little bit more more resonance. But yeah, it's been it's been kind of cool to see them take some of the ideas and and, and challenge some of the ideas. Um, you know, a lot of the a lot of the stuff around around 10,000 hours, you know, I think when, when the talent code was written in 09, um, that our understanding of it is kind of evolved, you know, a little bit. And so there's, um, there's kind of a, Oh, uh, eat your vegetables sort of, you know, stack up the hours sort of lesson in some of that early stuff, which I think now as, as they would rightly push back, just say, look, it's about, you know, getting, getting some high quality practice. Um, it's about, it's about, you know, building a life where you can, you know, kind of enjoy things and not just sort of be, you know, in your, in your practice box all the time. Mm -hmm. And I would say they'd be right.
0: Yeah. Well, let's do this. Uh, Let's shift gears and let's talk about the new book. And I want to start by asking what, what prompted your interest in, you know, going, making the leap from individual achievement to the secrets of groups? What kind of the seed uh, for your interest in this?
1: Yeah. The seed was actually this tennis ball. That was tossed. I was, I was researching, you know, individual talent, and I was at a, a Russian tennis club. It's called Spartak. That's produced tons of champions. And there's a coach there, and she was uh, managing a group of a dozen players playing. And the door creaks open, and a new kid comes in. A new, new new student comes in, and she's very. She looks sort of shy and scared, and she has a tennis racket in a plastic bag. And the coach, in the midst of all this action, notices the kid, goes over to them, carrying a tennis ball, bends down, and says welcome. I want you to do something for me. And the girl nods. And she says, I want you to catch this. And the teacher tosses the ball and the little girl catches it. And it it was, it took like eight seconds. You know, it was not a, it was not a huge, huge production. It was this tiny, almost offhand moment. But the impact that that moment had, this girl went from being a total outsider to feeling connected and cared for. She went from, you know, total fear to total connection. And I saw every place, you know, I'd visit these places and you'd see this sort of language happening underneath the surface, this like deep human grammar of, you know, language, not of words, but of signals. and that was a signal of safety, connection, belonging, that tennis ball. And so that really set me on this, on this journey to say, okay, what's, ha- what's happening at SEAL Team Six? Like, how do they get to be so crazily cohesive? What's happening in the San Antonio Spurs? What's happening at Zappos? What's happening at IDEO, at Pixar? And so, when you go to those places, and I was able to, you know, fortunately sort of visit a lot of them and embed myself there for a few days and 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 really observe them in action, um, they're doing the same language. They're, 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 they're sending these signals. You know, at, at Pixar, on your first day, whether you're – let's say you're a barista or let's say you're a programmer. Let's say you're a director. The exact same thing happens. You walk into the, to the theater and you sit in the fifth row because that's where the director sits. It's the best seat. Didn't know that at the time, and the uh, and Ed Catmull, who's the president and co-founder, comes out and says, "Whatever you did before, you're a movie maker now. We need you to help make our films better." That's what he says. And then they go to a meeting where everybody in the company watches footage together that they produced the day before, and they get a they call it plussing, adding ideas, adding ideas to it. I met a guy who was a, a software tech guy who had suggested a change in the metals that the up boy scout the boy scout and up what he wore they made a little change this connection safety voice they're tossing these tennis balls all over the place and so that experience of seeing and we've all had that experience right like you walk into a room maybe it's a great school maybe it's a great restaurant maybe it's a great family maybe it's a great business and you feel something what you're feeling is that that sense of cohesion and connection and cooperation and And there was a a great Harvard study that looked at 200 businesses, and they were paired. So they were identical. They were very similar businesses, but one had a strong culture. One had a weak culture. And at the end of a 10-year study, these ones with strong culture had produced 756% more net revenue. That's what culture is. Culture makes a group add up to more than the sum of its parts. It's in the space between people. It's a, a set of living relationships that's moving toward a goal. So that feeling that I, that I felt in those places was sort of replicated as I as I went to all these different different places. The same pattern of signals sent by leaders, sent by followers, sent by the environment, um, it replicated itself, and that's what what built.
0: Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. The book. Mm, wow. All right. Well, let's talk specifically about each one of these signals. and I want I to start by talking about building a sense of belonging and, and how we do that and how you create signals for safety within your organization.
1: Yeah, right, right. And that's the first thing. I mean, and, and, and just to pull the camera back for a second, like, you know, culture is one of those things that it gets talked about everywhere, right? It's sort of the placeholder for the cool stuff we can't understand. Right? Uh, that why why is Apple so great? Well they have this great cultural performance. Why is Google, you know, uh, great culture. Why is New England Patriots great culture? It's all this stuff. It's it's and that, that that story that we have of it being magic, or it sort of consisting of all these soft skills, right? These soft skills it ends up being kind of a damaging story because it doesn't it doesn't actually provide any tools there's no tools in that story you know it's all about things you have like oh we have good leadership and we have trust and teamwork um in fact when you strip away that that surface of stuff you have underneath there's functions there's functions and the first function is you have to be connected like you have to be connected whether you're a team of honeybees or a team of navy seals or a team of teachers or a team of radio show hosts you have to be connected And the way we humans do connection is through safety little signals little belonging cues of safety that say hey we're connected we share we share something and there was this amazing experiment that i write about in the book that that kind of captures that a little bit there's a company called WIPRO and they're a call center and they typically lose 50 percent of their people every single year because working in a call center sucks you know like it's, it's really hard place to work and so they Tried everything. They, they tried improving the perks. They tried improving the benefits. They tried changing the training. Nothing worked. Until in desperation, they tried this single thing. It was a one-hour change in the training system. Groups There were an the A group and a B group. And the A group got a one-hour presentation that was all about the company, all about Wipro. It's, they met a star performer. They got a tour of the grounds. They learned about the history of Wipro. And at the end, they got a sweatshirt with Wipro's name on it. With the B group, they flipped it. Instead of being the questions being about Wipro or the presentation being about Wipro, it was about the trainees. They asked them individually, hey, what happens on your best day? What happens on your worst day? If we were on a desert island and we were marooned there, what skills would you bring to our survival if we were marooned there? And at the end, that group got a sweatshirt, but it didn't say Wipro. It said their first name on it. If your name was Joe, it said Joe. Then they wait. The clock spins. Seven months later, the retention in the second group goes up 270%. So this massive change in in a sense of connection, belonging, safety. Why? It wasn't some magic that descended. It wasn't some magic culture. It was because they got a super clear signal. A super clear signal. We're connected. We share a future. I see you. I care about you. You know, that moment is by far the most important because it tells there's a little part of our brain called the amygdala, which is always looking for problems. It's always looking to test if we're in a group or out. And smart groups flood the zone and hit that amygdala with tons of signals of genuine, authentic connection caring that sends this, you know, a small signal that has a huge, huge effect.
0: It's interesting. I don't know that I've ever experienced that uh, in the you know limited time that I was in the corporate world, and maybe that's why I didn't stay there.
1: <laughs> right? It becomes harder. I mean, and, and I think we're smarter than previous generations in some way. We sort of get it. Uh, that, that yeah, you talk about being a family, but actually, this isn't a family. This is a business, and people who perform, um, you know, might not be around long. But the place that captured it. 'Cause that was that was sort of the question that I had when you see these belonging cues in action. It's like, well, no, wait a minute. There's you'd have to go to a group. I really wanted to see a group that ever had a really, really high standard of excellence. That wasn't, you know, it's not about you know, sort of holding hands and singing kumbaya. It's what happens when you have got a really, really high standard? And I, I actually went to a group where I saw that. It was the San Antonio Spurs, you know, which are coached by the most no nonsense you know, hardcore old school coach in the NBA, a guy named Greg Popovich. They're you know, the most successful team in the last twenty years in the NBA, too. Um and Popovich is, you know, he's fearsome. He's he gives very vivid feedback to his players. Uh but it was interesting spending time because looking behind the curtain, when he's not giving that feedback, he's connecting with them in an unbelievable way. That team eats together more often than most families. Like they are constantly breaking bread together, the coaches get together every every night before every game, and at the end of the year, they get an album with all the menus of the places they ate and the wine labels that they drank together. Um, he's Popovich is constantly making reservations for the guys, ordering the wine, asking how it was, finding about their hometown. I was there and they were, they had lost the night before and. They went into breakdown film, and I thought, oh, this is this is going to be a tough session, you know, breaking down all the mistakes. Well, what happened was, um, the screen flickers with a documentary from CNN, and the documentary was about the Civil Rights Act. And Popovich starts asking the players, "What would you have done? And what would you have done, you guys, if you were alive back then? What would you have done?" It was incredible, and but it wasn't magic. It was a really clear signal that he saw them as a whole person, that he was really interested in them, that he really cared. And that didn't prevent them from being excellent. In fact, it makes you more excellent. It makes you more connected. You can perform at a higher level. One of the coaches puts it this way. He says, Coach Popovich does two things. He'll tell you the truth and he'll love you to death. And it's like those two things aren't paradoxical at all. They're actually a great signal of, of connection. It's the best feedback someone can get, which is I'm telling you this because I care so much about you being on this team and about how we, we have really high standards here. And I believe you can reach those standards.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny. Um, the Spurs is one of those ones that I really wanted to talk to you about. It, it, like, I'm a weirdo who plays sports video game, but couldn't tell you a damn thing about what's going on in sports. So I only know from the, about the Popovich reputation from how much yeah. I play Xbox. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, Is he grouchy on Xbox? Well, you you only get to hear him, you know, praised and lauded. You don't hear him talk, but they, they talk quite openly about the culture of the Spurs and and how how different than they are they are than most basketball teams. And thinking about sort of the individual players, people like Kawhi Leonard, people like Tim Duncan, uh, you know, uh, Tony I don't remember his last name. Uh, it's Parker. not coming. Tony Parker. These are all people who are stars in their own right. So uh, you know, for me, that raises the question of what role individual talent plays in the role of highly successful groups given the nature of these types of people.
1: Oh, it's massive. It's, it's, it's big. I mean, you have all these places have got very talented people and (sighs) skill is really important. At the same time, culture is the thing that is the multiplier effect. You know, you, there are teams that have more raw talent than the Spurs. They've drafted at the bottom of the draft every year. They don't have access to top talent. Mm -hmm. They have to grow it. They have to grow it. And so they have to be more than the sum of their parts. And, and this so that – to me, that's the thing that, that makes these places unique. You know, There's the Navy SEALs and there's Delta Force. Now, Delta Force is really similar in many, many ways. It is a very high-achieving group of special ops soldiers. But when they train, Navy SEALs are always together. They, the togetherness is at the absolute peak of what they try to achieve in training. They have all these drills, which are really – When you look at them, they're kind of stupid drills because they're like, let's hold a telephone pole above our heads for 45 minutes or let's take that telephone pole and and we'll have to move it through an obstacle course together. There are very few times in war where you need to move a telephone pole through an obstacle course, right? But that's not the point. The point of that drill, which they do over and over again, is a sense of shared vulnerability and teamwork that I have to be keenly attuned to what you're doing in order for us to do it well. We have to be completely open and and the Delta Force does all this training too, but their their training is done around solo activities, you know, solo runs. And so it's a great contrast because you have an equally high caliber of talent. But the thing, the reason why the seals get called for the hard missions, because they can figure stuff out on the fly. They're a group brain moving through space together. They actually call it playing pickup basketball, like sort of like the Spurs. That's their name for doing their mission. Now think about it, it's such a beautiful. Symbol because in pickup basketball, we don't have a play. We don't have a player running, but you're going to move to space. I'm going to recognize that and I'm going to anticipate what you're going to do, and you're going to anticipate what I'm going to do because we're so connected. And the value of our team is in that connection, it's not in our individual talent. So, you know, both the SEALs and the Spurs, and I would put Pixar, I'd put Zappos, all of them succeed because their, their culture leverages the talent they have to a far higher level. Hmm.
0: So, if in our own organizations we don't necessarily have access to the highest levels of raw talent, how do we train people uh, to bring the best out of them, and how do we build what you call a collective brain?
1: Yeah, I think the key thing, and I think the thing that most people find really surprising, is the role of vulnerability in that yeah. process. The role of vulnerability when we are when you normally think about high performing groups, so you think about great great leaders. You know, um, we sort of have this image in our heads of kind of an authoritarian commanding presence who, ha- who possesses knowledge, that, that sharing that knowledge makes the group work well. That's actually not what you find in these, in, these, in these high-performing cultures. Instead, you find a really different kind of leader who's constantly sending signals of vulnerability. The way the Navy SEAL, I spent time with the Navy SEAL Team 6 commander who trained the troops that got bin Laden. His name is Dave Cooper. And the way he puts it is, he says, the four most important words a leader can say are, I screwed that up. Which is kind of an amazing thing to hear a soldier say. Someone who is in the business of never, hopefully never, screwing up. But the reason he says that, the reason he believes it, and the reason he's built all of his training around it is that when a leader sends that signal, it's a signal of vulnerability that lets everybody else tell the truth. It lets it lets information flow. Vulnerability is actually it's not about emotion. It seems like it's about emotion, but it's actually about information. I, I saw there was a great example when I was visiting Pixar and walking around this um, this incredible studio at Pixar. It's called Brooklyn. It's one of the it's one of the coolest buildings I've ever been in. To be fair, I'm from Alaska. Um, I haven't been in that many cool buildings. In uh, <laughs> there was a, in, the, in the town where we used to live, there was a building with an elevator, and we used to take our kids there and ride the elevator. It was like six flags to us. So I haven't been in a ton of cool buildings, but this one was actually cool. There were like all these speakeasies hidden under the stairway, and there was all, this, all these other little Pixarian touches. And so I turned to Ed, who's the president, co-founder, the brain behind Pixar, and I say, this is, this is like the coolest building I've ever been in. And he stops, full stop, turns his face, looks into my eyes and says, actually, this building was a huge mistake. Really? Why? And he said, well, we made the hallways too narrow. We really need people to sort of gather and, and collide in our hallways. We made them too narrow. We put the atrium in the wrong spot. He lists all these things. But then he says, but you know the biggest mistake that we made? The biggest mistake we made was that we made all these mistakes and we didn't even realize we were making them. Just this like stunning, layered, total expression of openness and fallibility from a guy who's sort of the George Lucas of his world, you know. The uh, and and I kept encountering that moment, you know, when I would these moments of vulnerability. And what they're doing is they're not just being humble; they're sending a signal that it's okay to tell the truth. They're they're, they're creating conversations, and it's called a vulnerability loop. It's called a vulnerability loop because it, it takes more than one person doing it. So when you when someone opens up to you, you open up to them. And when someone says, hey, I have, I'm not good at this, you come back. And by sharing that, you're actually building a shared mental model of how to do your job better. And the SEALs do it. Oh, man, when they, when they get off the helicopter, the first thing they do is they circle up. It's called an AAR, after action review. And they basically just go through the mission. And they, they talk about what we did wrong, what we're going to do differently next time. That's it, it's really simple, it's really hard to do, it's awkward, it's a difficult meeting, but it's incredibly powerful at producing vulnerability loops and letting people sort of connect with what's actually happening. When a group hides its weaknesses, when a group won't be vulnerable, it makes them really, really weak. And when a group will actually intentionally um, share their weaknesses with each other, that's what makes them strong.
0: So the next part of this that I know you wrote about was uh, the establishment of purpose. I am curious uh, how that happens, because I think each of us individually is seeking that. But how do you combine the sort of individual desire for purpose with one that works as a group?
1: Yeah, right. Well, when we first, like when you traditionally, when we think about purpose, we sort of think about our, our hearts, you know, like what's in our heart? What's our deepest, uh, our deepest uh, mission uh, in, in life as a group or as an individual? Um, and, and that's that's definitely a big a big part of it but I had this experience when I visited these places that um, they ended up really filling their own windshields with their own stories and you'd always know you were in a good group because it felt a little cheesy and it's a strange thing it was a strange phenomenon but you'd be in these group and all of a sudden they'd be sort of repeating these mantras for the seals it's We shoot, move, and communicate. We're the quiet professional. The only easy day was yesterday. And they repeat these kind of mantras over and over again. They fill the windshield with those. And what I I began to see is that purpose is something that you sort of dig out of your experience and turn into a story. And you put that story in your windshield. A good story about creating purpose, actually – was Danny Meyer. Um, some of your listeners might have eaten at his restaurants. Gramercy Tavern, Union Square Cafe, Shake Shack. Um, he's, a, he's a restaurateur. Incre- he's like the Pixar of restaurants, incredibly high-performing um, high restaurants. And he opened one restaurant it was successful. He opened a second, and it started to fail because he could not be in two places at once. When he was in the room, everybody knew what to do. Everybody knew what their culture was because he was what great – You know, that's what great looks like. It looks like him. But when he couldn't be in both places, service in both places started to slip. And so he sort of pressed pause and had a retreat with all of his people. And he started trying to figure out what they were about. And what he ended up building was sort of a map of catchphrases. Um, At True North, what are we about? We're about creating raves. At at the end of the day, that's it. That is the only thing that we really care about the most, creating raves. And then – Beneath that, he writes all these other sort of – they sort of work like algorithms. And they're simple, cheesy sort of catchphrases like loving problems, the excellence reflex, athletic hospitality. Um, This is my favorite one where he says, mistakes are waves and servers are surfers of those waves. So they're kind of – like they're memorable and goofy um, and they also happen to be incredibly powerful. And you have to sort of again – you have to kind of picture – All groups are sort of like a flock of birds moving through space together. So they need to do those three things. They need to send a signal of connection. We're connected. They need to share information. Where are you at? Where am I at? What's really happening? And then they need to have a direction. And what that creating raves is, is that's the North Star. What matters in the end? It's not our stock price. It's not... Um, it's not the quality of our of our food. It's not how much money we make in a night. What matters? Creating raves matters. And when he started filling the windshield with that sense of real purpose, um, which he created in collaboration with his people, that's the important thing to kind of take away too, that this wasn't something he put in from kind of a top-down way. He created it out of a conversation where he created consensus and agreement around that. That's what we do. That's who we are. Um, and that's the process that I think results in having – a a strong and clear purpose and it's one where you know the world changes fast purpose can change fast you have to you can't sort of write everything in in stone but to constantly be going through that process of unearthing your story and then broadcasting your story and unearthing your story and broadcasting it is really at the core of what good groups do
0: so knowing all this why do we have companies where this isn't the norm
1: yeah right well, because our default setting is to take care of our own status, right? I mean, good leadership is really rare, uh, and finding companies that can do this is it, it's it's not complex to do, but it is it is hard. It's hard to have leaders be vulnerable, especially when your salary is on the line. Um, we're kind of an interesting moment, though, because you know the world, as we were talking before, the world is moving really quickly. Um, businesses. It is a learning contest. And so having groups that sort of figure this out a little bit to realize that, hey, our culture isn't just destiny and it's not just kind of some, some halo that will float in or not. Um, it's something that we actually have some control over in the signals that we send um, every day and in the, in the habits that we have as a group. Um, that was one thing that I saw in these groups. You know, culture is behavior. It's, it's not something you have, it's something you do. And so having those things like the Pixar daily meetings that I told about or the AARs, they operate like cultural calisthenics. They're behaviors that you engage in together to create these moments of, of openness, uh, vulnerability, uh, safety and connection and
0: purpose. Hmm. What do you think the future of work is going to look like uh, based on having gone through these, these experiences and, and the research that you've done from your books?
1: There's a lot of smarter people who have weighed into this. So uh, with, a, with, a, with a huge grain of salt, I would, I would say I'm attracted to the theory that it's going to look a lot more like working on a Hollywood movie, which is, all right, there's some project out there and uh, who do I need? Okay, we're going to put a team together. That team's going to have to kind of quickly come together and for a, for a period of time, work in close collaboration to solve a complex, fast-moving problem. And then they will break up and then they will all go to another movie, if you will. That to me, that feels like where we're headed, where what's going to matter is the skill set we bring and the relationships we have and our 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 soft skills, if we are going to call it that our skills that which really aren't soft. They're actually all about clarity, um, but our, our, our ability to uh, build a cohesive team, which isn't you know, which isn't, isn't random. Um, it's, it's a, it's a language you can learn to speak. So, to me, that's what it feels like. I'd be curious to get your vision of that. If I can flip the question on you, what do you think it's going to look like?
0: Yeah, you're not the first person who's asked me the question after I've asked them. Um, I I think that we're heading very much largely to sort of a freelance model. I think it doesn't make sense in a lot of cases to have full-time staff, uh, hundreds of them, especially when you only need them for specific tasks. I think it's actually not very cost effective. Uh, That, I think, is going to be really probably the biggest game changer. And you know we're already seeing, so much happening with automation i, I don't know, know how old you are but i remember when i was in college it would take weeks to build a website and to build the same website you can do in hours now that's true because that's of true. what has happened so you've got you know i think technology is giving the individual more leverage to create at scale than ever before and that's going to be incredibly disruptive to the way we work yeah
1: no i think it's absolutely true i think it's absolutely true it's gonna be fascinating
0: yeah wow uh, well, this has been really, really cool. Uh, so I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: You know, I think, I think there's, um, what makes something or somebody unmistakable by digging the unmistakable for me a little bit. I love that word, but I, I want to make sure that I'm thinking of it the same way you're thinking of
0: it. Uh, yeah, I guess you know, for the purposes of a book I wrote titled Unmistakable, I defined it as something so distinctive that nobody else could have done it but you. It's immediately recognized as your work. Yeah, right, right.
1: I think, I think I, I, being able – I mean the essence of this is there's connecting dots, which is great, which all creativity does. I think the, the deeply unmistakable things are when you're connecting worlds of dots – and again, this sounds this sounds very ephemeral, but the idea of the, the the interesting things that happen at the intersection of domains, whether that domain is art and science or whether that domain is hip-hop and the revolution you know as we've seen with with something like hamilton this idea that you can when you create when you connect two dots that's fine that's linear but when you create connect whole families of dots you get all kinds of crazy um energy uh and and i think that's what happens in some of our some of the best work you know why is that gladwell book so amazing um to bring sort of the science and storytelling together so seamlessly is amazing. Um, you know, we, we see it in art, we see it in music, and we see it in in the history of art. People who are able to sort of bridge these worlds and bring two vocabularies to some intersectional activity—it's uh, it's really powerful. So that's that's what that's what I would say makes something unmistakable.
0: Hmm. Wow, wow. Well, this has been amazing, as I expected it would be. Uh, where can people find out more about you, your work, and your books? yeah well hopefully
1: from you i, I think you, if you do you're so kind i really appreciate these conversations we you have a way of going a little bit deeper and a little more thoughtfully than so many other um so many other things in this space a little more unmistakable you might say um and they can find it as a, i have a website at danielcoyle.com uh, and awesome. the book is well in most places um, hopefully
0: everywhere awesome and for everybody listening we'll wrap the show with that